0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Lindsay Rich. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. You know, during quarantine, um, I have gotten to spend a lot of time at home, like most of you. And that means that I've gotten to spend a lot of time with my kids, which has been really great um, for the most part. <laughs> but one of the things I've I have noticed is it's allowed me to observe them more closely and to see them as they interact. And one of the things that I have learned about my children is that they really don't like doing dishes. They're generally very helpful. Um, They like doing a lot of other things to help around, but something about doing the dishes really bothers them. Um, One time my son was emptying the dishwasher and he was complaining about how he didn't think it was fair that he had to empty the dishwasher because he hadn't used all of the dishes that were in it, right? He was especially upset about the coffee mugs because He doesn't drink coffee. And so having to put away coffee mugs that he didn't use and just the perceived injustice of it all was just too much. Um, And you know, I think it's funny, right? And I've realized that sometimes uh, my kids try to get out of doing things because, well, they're people. And people like us all generally prefer relaxing to doing chores. Um, But at other times, they genuinely don't feel like something is theirs to do. And so I really, I've been thinking about that and I realized this question of what is ours to do is a really important one because there are a lot of options of things that we could do, things that we're asked to do, things that we would rather not do, things uh, that we are drawn to do. And this is true generally in life. And this is true for those of us who are followers of Jesus and trying to follow the Lord in the kingdom. Um, That, you know, it's a good thing to think about. So that is what I want us to be evaluating this morning and considering our own lives and and faithfulness and what faithfulness looks like, asking the question, what's mine to do? Um, And I want to do that by looking at the book of Ruth. So today we are kicking off a new sermon series called Turning Pages, And this is a summer reading series where we are looking at different stories and how they shape us. So we are going to be looking at fiction and nonfiction, at biblical stories, at children's stories, right? We're just going to consider how words on pages that we read um, influence us, shape us, impact us. And so we're going to do that with Ruth today. And the book of Ruth is part of the Hebrew Bible, which we often call the Old Testament. Um, Ruth is a story that happens during the same historical time period as the book of Judges does. Um, And what we know about that time period is that this is not a great time period in the history of Israel. There is division and there's disunity among the tribes of Israel. Um, And there was, I don't know, religious and moral decline is probably what the scholars would say, right? But basically, if you were in charge of PR for the nation of Israel and the Israelite people, um, you would avoid putting this in the highlight reel because this was a dark and unfaithful time for the Israelites. Um, And so while that is happening, at the same time, so is the story of Ruth. And so Ruth, through her faithful life, provides a contrast to the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. And so she gives us this story of what it looks like to be upright and trustworthy and steadfast in God's kingdom right? All of the things that the, the Israelites are supposed to demonstrate, um, but they aren't. Okay, so here's what happens in the book of Ruth. There is a Jewish family um, living in Bethlehem, and that's Naomi and her husband and their two sons. And uh, Bethlehem literally translates means house of bread. Um, and But Bethlehem at that time Uh, didn't have any bread. They ran out. There was a famine. And so Naomi and her family moved to the country of Moab to find food. And while they were there, Naomi's husband died. And they had brought along their two sons and her sons married Moabite women. And then her two sons died. So Naomi is left living in Moab along with her two daughters-in-law and all three of them are widows. And then Naomi heard that uh, there was food again in Bethlehem. And so she decided to return and she encouraged her daughters-in-law to actually stay in Moab. And one of them does. But Ruth insisted on coming with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Um, and when they got there, Ruth began to glean in the fields of a wealthy landowner. And ultimately she met him um, and she learned that he was in a position to redeem her. And what that meant was that he could reinstate her essentially into society structures Uh, because she was left out of that because of her status um, as a widow and not having any children in this patriarchal society. Um, So so that's what happens. Ruth ends up marrying this man and she has a son and her son Obed actually was the grandfather of King David. Okay, so that's the story of Ruth kind of in a nutshell. And as we look at it this morning, um, I want us to, to think about, right, what does Ruth have to show us about ourselves and our lives when we consider this question, what's mine to do? Um, So one of the things that I think that we can learn from Ruth and apply to our own lives is that faithfulness starts with what you have. So in many ways, the story of Ruth shows us that, that faithfulness looks like just starting where you are and taking the next step right you you begin just with where you are and what you have now, Ruth and Naomi didn't have a lot; they were both widows, and the social status of widows in the ancient near East was pretty dismal. Um, if your husband died, you were vulnerable because your your status was linked to his so widows um were generally poor. Uh, or even in debt because they had to borrow just to survive. And on top of their poverty, a widow was often considered a disgrace if she didn't have a son because to be a woman of value, you had to provide a male heir to continue your husband's family line. So to be a widow with no sons and to be beyond childbearing age, which means you don't have any hope of providing something that society would value, is a pretty bad place to be. And that is where Naomi found herself, and things were bleak, and Naomi knew it, right? She began to internalize this, actually, and she started to describe herself as bitter. She even wanted to rename herself because um, her her whole identity was taking on um, her situation. Now, Ruth was also vulnerable, but her situation was a little bit better because she was younger. So if she remarried, she would have the possibility of having a good future. And Naomi knew this, and that um, reality you know was influ- would influence where she landed. So Naomi was encouraging Ruth to go back to her mother's house in Moab um, rather than to return with her to Judah. But instead of staying in Moab, Ruth decided she was going to go with Naomi. And here in Ruth, um, we have one of the most moving sections in all of scripture. Okay, this is a section of the Bible, these couple verses that you're probably familiar with, even if you've never been to church, because these verses are often read in weddings and they're put on plaques and they hang in people's walls, right? Because Ruth's commitment to Naomi demonstrates extreme loyalty. Okay, so I want us to read this together. Um, So this is Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. And Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So, Ruth could have left, but she decided that what was hers to do was to stay with Naomi. And so she literally humbled herself. She took a lower position where now she would not only be a widow, but she would be a foreigner. She decided to take on um, a position that society valued even less than the one that she had. And she was going to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem and and go into a system that was not designed to help her. And in fact, was designed to make the process of survival even more difficult for her. Right, just can you imagine what this would be like for Ruth? Right, can you imagine a system where poor foreigners who show up to a country can't legally provide for themselves? Right, where they aren't recognized as having Any rights at all, and who are viewed actually as a threat to the purity of their own country's systems and education and religion, so much so that they actually write laws to try to keep these vulnerable people out. Right? Just, I mean, try to imagine if such a system were to exist, right? That is the situation in which Ruth finds herself. She's a widow, she's a foreigner who is showing up to a land where she's vulnerable. She has no husband, she has no rights. She has no wealth. She has no standing in the land. She has no history with its people or with its religion. And yet she tied her own future to Naomi's. Ruth um, is a remarkable story in part because she loved Naomi when Naomi was sad and bitter and broken and had no prospects of life getting better on her own, right? Ruth decided to enter into the situation and to take care of a widow who was so swallowed up in her own grief that she didn't even recognize her own name. Ruth entered into that situation, and she loved Naomi when society would deem her unlovable or not valuable. And in doing that, Ruth's actions remind us that there are no throwaway people. There are no garbage people. Naomi mattered. And so Ruth leveraged what little she had to care for someone who was even more vulnerable than she was. Ruth stayed, and so in this story of Ruth's faithfulness, she gives us an image of what what loyalty and love and commitment and faithfulness can look like, even in powerlessness. Um, right, what's ours to do starts with exactly where we are and what we have right now, right? We just, we use whatever we have access to, however much or however little that may be. And we use it to lavishly love people, right? Faithfulness starts right where we are. Loving people starts right where we are. We just use what we have um, and are faithful with it. Okay, another thing that we see in the story of Ruth is that faithfulness, um, looks different sometimes than what we would expect. So Ruth was an outsider. Ruth was a Moabite. Um, the book of Ruth is only four chapters long. Okay, you can read this whole story before you finish a cup of coffee. I know because I've done it several times this week. Um, read it and drank coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. Okay, but l- literally eight times in these four chapters, Ruth tells us it tells us that Ruth was a Moabite. Okay, this is an important detail in this story, and we know that because remember, Ruth was written on a scroll. Okay, scrolls were really expensive. And you don't waste space when you're writing on scrolls. They didn't even put spaces between the words. It's kind of difficult to read Hebrew that's written on these ancient scrolls because they just smush all the words together and they write all the way to the edges. There's no margins. So if you repeat something when you're writing on a scroll, even one time, you're saying it's important. And if you repeat it eight times, you're basically shouting, okay? So Ruth is a Moabite. Eight times they tell us this. So that's important. So let's just remember um, how the Moabites were viewed in Scripture. So their beginning, we learn of them in Genesis 19, and it says that they started off from an incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughter. So that's a messy beginning for them. Um, And then in Numbers 25, it says that the Moabite women were ones who actually drew away the Israelites um, to worship and to sacrifice to their many gods. So that's not awesome. Um, And then things got so tense between the Moabites and the Israelites that we see in Deuteronomy 23 that they actually put laws into place to prevent the Moabites from entering the Lord's assembly for up to 10 generations. Um, So they were legally prohibiting them from from coming um, to interact with them. And then in Judges 3, um, this was during the time that Ruth was living, we see that the king of Moab was actually oppressing the Hebrew tribes on uh, both sides of uh, the river. So the relationship is tense, okay? And so the Jewish people who would have been reading the story of Ruth would have had a definite instant view of the Moabites. So when um, they see this, right, they see you have Ruth who is this childless widow. So she's a bit of a disgrace and she has no social capital and she's a foreigner. Right, but she's worse than like a normal foreigner. She's a Moabite, right? They they would have responded instantly to that. Okay? So what this means really is that the eight references to Ruth as a Moabite highlights this irony that this woman, who just by her nationality would be viewed as somebody who would lead God's people into unfaithfulness, right? Would lead them away from the Lord. She is the one who is modeling Covenant, loyalty, and kindness. So, you know, the, it's the Israelites who are unfaithful. It's the Moabite who is loyal. And not only is she loyal, it's through this Moabite lineage that the whole world will be redeemed. So Ruth being a Moabite is meant to be jarring. This is meant to stand out to us. Okay, before you have the story of the good Samaritan, you have the story of the good Moabite. Right. That's essentially what this is. Ruth is essentially the story of the good Moabite. It, it causes us to question our assumptions and how we label people. Um, and by including like the wrong person in such a prominent place in our sacred story and in our, our history and our lineage, the Lord is teaching us something about belonging in God's kingdom. So, one of the things um, that we know about the Jewish people is that the part of the Jewish identity was about being chosen, um, that, that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. And that is a correct way of viewing themselves, right? That's a right identity. But what ends up not being right is the assumption that often comes along with knowing that you're chosen. And that's the assumption that everyone else is not chosen, that everyone else has to be the opposite of you and what you are, right? It's this view that if you're blessed, then everyone else must be cursed. If you're special, they're not special. Okay, but this, that's a misunderstanding of chosenness, okay? That way of viewing chosenness assumes that the blessings and the goodness of God are actually a scarce commodity. And that for me to have the the goodness of God, you can't have any, right? Because we might run out. So if I'm chosen and I want to make sure that my kids are chosen and my family's chosen, then you can't be chosen in case there's not enough of a supply of chosenness. Ruth's story reminds us that the Jewish people being chosen is not a limitation of God's love or of his providence for anyone else. Okay, Ruth's story reminds us, like it, it causes us to remember back to Abraham in Genesis 12, right? This is the first time that we realize that this family is being chosen. And the promise that God gave to Abraham and to his family was that he was going to bless them and that through them, the whole world would be blessed. Israel was always meant to be a light to all of the nations. God's house was always meant to be what Isaiah would later call a house of prayer for all nations. Okay, this is a through line in scripture. God's plan has always been to redeem the whole world that he created and loves. And so Ruth, this Moabite woman who was weak and who was powerless and who was literally banned from gathering with the Lord's assembly by the Lord's people because of her nationality. She is scooped into our sacred story, right? I mean, Ruth's faithfulness, like part of what it does, um, and the her faithfulness that feels so unlikely to the Jewish people, it illuminates something that's hidden in plain sight throughout scripture. And this is that often, outsiders are more faithful than insiders. And this this reality that outsiders are often more faithful than insiders, it is, it's a stinging rebuke um, and also a thrilling reality, right? It's thrilling because it reminds us that God's kingdom has always had everyone in mind, right? Ruth is actually listed in the gospel of Matthew in Jesus's genealogy, showing that like, the literal embodiment of Jesus represents all people on the earth, even the Moabites, right? So that's exciting and thrilling. Um, And this story of Ruth also serves as a corrective to those of us who have ears to hear, because it reminds us that we are not faithful just because we've been part of a nation or of a church or of a group that has a history of attaching God's name to it, right? The Israelites' unfaithfulness was It was glaring when it was contrasted by this young Moabite woman who did not grow up hearing the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and she wasn't even allowed to gather with them when, when they worshipped so this this story um, can cause us to remember to evaluate right what faithfulness actually looks like in our lives and in our communities and to honestly reflect on whether or not we are living faithfully. Um, I've had a number of conversations with my friends recently about racial injustice and all of the attention that's being brought right now to systems in our country where racism still exists and where injustice against the black community is ongoing. And one of the things that I've been talking about with my friends and that is really weighing on me is that people who are not Christians, people who make no claim to faith at all, in many cases are actually doing a better job than the churches in calling out injustice and insisting that people recognize just the inherent dignity and value of black and brown people. And so so that's been that's been weighing on me and I think You know, part of what is concerning to me about that is knowing the history of race and racism in our churches across America. So, I've been reading just a lot about race and learning more and more about race and racism in our country, including in our churches. And I have been trying to learn more about our own denominations' history concerning race. You know, I'm new to United Methodism. And honestly, I am. I'm so thrilled to be worshiping with and pastoring in this denomination. Um, I've not been here for very long, but man, I love us. (laughs) Like, I just, I think Methodists are just pretty great. You know, that's just true. It's just true. Um, and, And also what is true is that our history as United Methodists regarding racism is not great. So I don't know if you know this or not, but the Supreme Court ruled in 1954 that separate but equal doesn't work. And the Civil Rights Act um, actually prohibited segregation, uh, racial segregation in, in schools and in jobs and in public places and stuff in 1964. That's when our society said no more, right? But here in the United Methodist Church, we didn't fully dissolve our segregated Black central jurisdiction until 1968, and then we didn't fully require our conferences to desegregate until 1972. So that's, that's eight years after secular institutions declared that black and white people were equally valuable and ought to be treated as such. Right, you guys, that, that means that our church was one of the last strongholds of forced segregation in our country. And knowing this, knowing this is important. And I think that maybe remembering this might be why David Hockett, who's our district superintendent, um, and Bishop Leland and and the Council of Bishops have come out so quickly and so strongly in denouncing the egregious sins of racism and white supremacy and have been affirming the church um, in using like encouraging for the church to use its voice and to lead the way to holy changes. I think that knowing that secular institutions were behaving in a more just and faithful way than not only our church, but churches across America uh, is important. And that's not something that we like remembering and naming. But it's also something that we don't want to forget. Because this remembering of our history um, Is it's important, and it's part of why I'm so grateful for the book of Judges and Ruth that give us that model for us how to do this right? How to look at contrasting stories of faithfulness and unfaithfulness so that we can be encouraged to say, You know what, I want to live more faithfully. And we don't have to be afraid to do this to look honestly at ourselves, at our own lives, at our history, and um to look for places where we can move forward in faithfulness. Our theology actually sets us up perfectly for this, right? We sing songs about amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, right? Our faith insists that we admit that we are so broken and we are so sinful that we require saving. And so when we look at our own lives and we see sin, we lament and we repent and we say, yes, it's true. Lord, have mercy. And then we move forward in faithfulness, right? We ask the question, what's mine to do, right? Friends, right now is the moment for the people of God to rise and to move to faithful action. And that's actually rather exciting, right? That, that actually leads me to my last point about Ruth and to her story, because this story reminds us that the everyday choices that we make in our lives are woven together, to write the story, um, to form the story that God is writing. Okay, so the Bible is filled with stories of the direct action of God. Okay, we we see God showing up like in in a burning bush and a hand that writes on the wall, um, the Red Sea parting, chariots of fire, right? There are many times where God himself shows up and directly acts in, in the stories, in the Bible and in our lives. And those are powerful ways that God acts in history. Ruth is a story that has almost no direct action by God. There are no angelic visitations. Um, Naomi, when she's hungry, is not fed by manna from heaven. She is fed when Ruth goes gleaning in a field. Okay, this is a story that's filled with ordinary people who look to the Lord for help and they believe in his lordship. And then the way that they see God show up is through other people. And just like the direct acts of God, these are powerful ways that God is acting in history. Most of the book of Ruth is a demonstration of God showing up through people, not independently of them. So um, James in the New Testament would talk about this, like in, in James 2, chapter, chapter two, verse six, James says, um, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Right? We see that in Ruth. Ruth is a story that shows us that living an active faith has action behind it. And it's these everyday actions, the everyday decisions, the conversations that happen and how we show up in our lives that are woven together to write the story of God in the world. So we today living here in Charlotte um, might not be gleaning in fields for other people, right? But when we demonstrate loyalty and when we look to the needs of others and when we stand for justice and when we care for the marginalized, when we insist there are no throwaway people, we are participating in the work of God's kingdom. So today as we go from here, um, I want to encourage you to keep asking this question, for all of us to ask this question, what's mine to do? And I hope that we will all continue to be inspired by Ruth to simply start where you are, right? To take whatever we have, however little or however much that is, and leverage it for the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the ways that we might see justice and love show up in increasing ways in our community? Um, if we committed to doing this more and more and more. So may that be true of all of us.